Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi guys, it's Ange. So, today I was talking to someone about yellow journalism, and we started to talk about Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. And this person had no idea that Citizen Kane was based on the life of William Randolph Hearst. They were surprised that it was actually a kind of biopic, although Randolph Hearst's name was never used. It was, it was based on him. There was a huge war before the movie Citizen Kane ever came out between William Randolph Hearst and Orson Welles' company. And they used every tactic, every gossip columnist, every person they could to try to get this movie not shown or made. And it failed, thankfully, because in my opinion, Citizen Kane is the greatest movie ever made. So Orson Welles based his movie Citizen Kane on the career of William Randolph Hearst, who built literally the world's largest newspaper chain and influenced American journalism beyond any words that you can ever imagine. Hearst was considered to be almost godlike, and he was born in 1863 and died in 1951. So one in five Americans were reading a Hearst newspaper a week, according to the docu to, to a documentary that was made about about this war between Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst. And according to the documentary, the movies were more powerful than the newspaper ever could be. But no one understood this back then. And Hearst was determined to make art and written word the property of the masses. This segment of the documentary is important when comparing how different Hearst's mindset was in using newspaper to attract the masses. Whereas nowadays, films and television socially construct people's perception of reality, as seen in Fahrenheit 451 much more than the written word does. So, Hearst was first to call to the San Francisco Examiner when he was very close to flunking out of Harvard. Then, he took hold of the New York Journal and Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, which led to the creation of yellow journalism. Early in the 20th century, journalism highlighting sensationalized crime and disasters he created the largest newspaper and magazine business in the world, but the competition between Hearst's Good Morning Journal and Pulitzer's World was so intense it devalued journalism and caused much skepticism, especially when yellow journalism got out of hand. Significantly political opinions and constantly pushed his opinion during the period known as yellow journalism. This period is between 1895 and 1898. And he once hired a woman to collapse in the streets just to see how the community responded. And further, so he could publish an article on how people treated indigent women in society. 
According to a documentary, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. says that Hearst once said, you can crush man with journalism and you can't with a motion picture. Hearst took yellow journalism to a whole new level with large headlines, big front page pictures, extensive use of photos and illustrations, and especially cartoons. For example, many historians believe that the sinking of Maine was engineered by Hearst in order to create a war that his paper could cover and build as much circulation as possible. The newspaper wars of this era were thus very sensationalized and exaggerated. So the sinking of Maine has nothing to do with Malacca Island. No, the sinking of Maine was a warship. So take for example, the Spanish-American War of 1898. The terrible conditions in Cuba were dramatized for the sake of journalism. The most well-known story was that of Frederick Remington, a, can a Canton, New York native who telegraphed Hearst to tell him that Cuba was fairly quiet and that there would be no war. Hearst responded, please remain. You furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. The conditions in Cuba was bad enough, but when the war started, Hearst basically took credit for the war itself and he ran a headlining journal. And it said, how do you like the journal's war on the front page? This drastic nature of yellow journalism was mainly in New York City. For example, in the journal, Hearst focused on the enemy who set the bomb and even offered a huge reward to readers. So Hearst played the role of public preacher by publishing political hype and opinions in his own publications. He succeeded in establishing the first nationwide newspaper chain in America from LA to Chicago by purchasing more and more newspapers. People were able to see his headlines everywhere, which allowed him to dictate public opinion all across the country. The narrator of the documentary, Richard Ben Kramer, interpreted, interpreted this phenomenon saying, it was a soapbox of size no candidate had ever enjoyed. Hearst, the most renowned owner of American newspapers at this time, was manipulating his readers. He elevated himself to make political statements and he, at, that he deemed as newsworthy and attractive to the masses by enacting the harsh, sensationalized platform of yellow journalism. He stood atop his soapbox, which allowed him to transform newspapers in a way in which he directly affected the emotions and perceptions of reality of those who invested in his newspaper. While yellow journalism was utilized to emphasize attracting readers' attention, while yellow journalism was utilized to emphasize attracting readers' attention, Orson Welles attempted to use the CBS radio network as a platform to tell an extremely terrifying story, War of the Worlds. This daring and reckless decision caused a serious panic among the listeners in the United States because they believed the story was actually happening at that very moment. This event proved how average people were, were defenselessly influenced by the products that these mediums yield, which is known as the mass society theory and hypodermic needle theory. 
At the same time, the panic produced by Wells through the radio and medium suggested a decline in the power of the mass society theory. Since this event proved how average people were defenselessly influenced by the products that these mediums yield, which is known as the mass society theory and the hypodermic needle theory. At the same time, this panic produced by Wells through the radio medium suggested a decline in the power of the mass society theory, since there were people who had not taken any action after listening to the radio five times more than those who believed it. Therefore, this consequence showed the development of the limited effects theory, which was used to be the hypothesis emerging that medium influence was limited by individual differences, social categories, and personal relationships. As for the battle over Citizen Kane, Hearst seemed to beat out Wells since eventually, Wells needed to close his company due to its bad reputation intensified by Hearst's obstruction. However, Hearst's attack to seize the movie Citizen Kane by writing poorly about the movie in his newspaper would possibly be the greatest advertising the movie ever had, as his newspapers were read by countless people. Hence, some individuals may assume that his obstruction actually helped the movie and allowed Wells to be nominated for nine Academy Awards. So does yellow journalism still exist today? The answer is easy. 100%, 1,000,000%, 1,000%, 1,000,000,000%, yes, yes, yes. Many newspapers display the most exaggerated picture of the front page to attract people and make them buy it, no matter how skewed the truth may be. There are even magazines that only deliver gossip, which is often exaggerated significantly by the editors in order to attract, to actually persuade people to pick up the magazine in the store or click on the article headline on the internet. Also, due to the development of new technology and personalization, YouTube has become one of the largest platforms to portray exaggerated events, such as Hollywood gossip, uploaded by so-called YouTubers. Now, Yellow journalism is easier to provide and create because of, because of technological developments and it is clearly an, an element of today's society that attracts many individuals of our current generation. So Citizen Kane was eventually released on May 1st, 1941, but months before its release, Orson Welles' landmark film Citizen Kane began generating such controversy that Radio Music City Hall eventually refused to show it. Instead, Citizen Kane, now one, now revered as one of the greatest movies in history, made its debut at the smaller RKO Palace Theater on May 1st, 1941. By the time he began working on Citizen Kane, the 24-year-old Wells had already made a name for himself as Hollywood's infant terrible. He first found success on Broadway and the radio. His October 1938 broadcast version of the science fiction classic, The War of the Worlds, was so realistic that some listeners actually believed Martians had invaded New Jersey. Having signed a lucrative contract with RKO Studios, Wells was struggling to find a subject for his first feature film, when his friend, the writer, Herman Mankiewicz, suggested that he based it on the life of the publishing baron, William Randolph Hearst. Hearst presided over the country's leading newspaper empire, ruling it from his empire, San Simeon, a sprawling estate perched atop a hill along California's central coastline. A preview of Citizen Kane in early February had drawn almost 
universally favorable reviews from critics. However, one review, one reviewer, the leading Hollywood gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, was incensed by the film and Wells' portrayal of its protagonist, Charles Foster Kane. She took her concerns to Hearst himself, who soon began waging a full-scale campaign against Wells and his film, barring the Hearst newspaper from running ads for it and enlisting the support of Hollywood bigwits such as Louis B. Mayer of Metro of Metro Goldwyn Mayer. It was said Hearst was particularly angry over the movie's depiction of a character based on his companion, Marion Davies, a former showgirl who he had helped become a popular Hollywood actress. For his part, Wells threatened to sue Hearst for trying to suppress the film and also to sue RKO if the company did not release the film. When Citizen Kane finally opened in May 1941, it was a failure at the box office, although reviews were favorable and it was nominated for nine Academy Awards. Wells was booed at the year's Oscar ceremony and RKO quietly archived the film. It was only years later when it was re-released that Citizen Kane began to garner well-deserved accolades for its pioneering camera and sound work, as well as its complex blend of drama, black comedy, history, biography, and even fake newsreel or mockumentary footage that has informed hundreds of films produced since then. It is consistently ranked at the top of film critics' list, most notably grabbing the number one spot on the American, the American Film Institute's poll of America's 100 Greatest Films. So after Citizen Kane, Wells' diverse works, instead of everything from Shakespeare adaptions to documentaries, some of his most acclaimed films including included The Stranger in 1946, The Lady from Shanghai in 1948, and Chimes at Midnight, 1966. In his later years, he, narr he narrated documentaries, appeared in commercials, and he left behind several unfinished films when he died at the age of 70 on October 10th, 1985. So how did yellow journalism affect US diplomacy? So yellow journalism was coined for a time period between 1895 and 1898. However, we do know that yellow journalism is used today and has been used since this time. So yellow journalism was a style of newspaper reporting that emphasized sensationalism over facts. During its heyday in the late 19th century, one of the many factors that helped push the United States and Spain into war in Cuba and the Philippines, leading to the acquisition of overseas territory by the United States. An example of yellow journalism, so, the term originated in the competition over the New York City newspaper market between major newspaper publishers Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. At first, yellow journalism had nothing to do with reporting but instead derived from a popular cartoon strip about life in New York slums called Hogan's Alley, drawn by Richard F. Outcult. Published in color by Pulitzer's New York World, the comic's most well-known characters came to be known as the Yellow Kid and his popularity, popularity accounted in no small part for a tremendous increase in sales of the world in 1896. And in an effort to boost sales of his New York journal, Hearst hired Outcall away from Pulitzer, launching a fierce beating war between the two publishers over the cartoonist. Hearst ultimately won this battle, but Pulitzer refused to, to give in and, and hired a new cartoonist to continue drawing the cartoon for his paper. This battle over the yellow kid and greater market share 
gave rise to the term yellow journalism. Once the term had been coined, it extended to the sensationalist style employed by two publishers in their profit-driven coverage of world events, particularly developments in Cuba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cuba had long been a Spanish colony, and the revolutionary movement, which had been simmering on and off there for much of the 19th century, intensified during the 1890s. Many in the United States called upon Spain to withdraw from the island, and some even gave material support to the Cuban revolutionaries. Hearst and Pulitzer devoted more and more attention to the Cuban struggle for independence at times accentuating the harshness of Spanish rule or the nobility of the revolutionaries, and occasionally printing rousing stories that proved to be false. This sort of coverage, complete with bold headlines and creative drawings of the events, sold a lot of papers for both publishers. But the peak of yellow journalism in terms of both intensity and influence came in early 1898, when a U.S. battleship, the Maine, sunk in a Havana harbor. The naval vessel had been sent there not long before in a display of U.S. power and in in conjunction with the planned visit of a Spanish ship to New York. An effort to diffuse growing tensions between the United States and Spain, on the night of February 15th, an explosion tore through the ship's hull and the main went down. Sober observers and an initial report by the colonial government of Cuba concluded that the explosion had occurred on board, but Hearst and Pulitzer, who had for several years been spelling papers by fanning anti-Spanish public opinions in the United States, published rumors of plots to sink the ship. When a U.S. naval investigation later stated that the explosion had come from a mine in the harbor, the proponents of yellow journalism seized upon it and called for war. By early May, the Spanish-American War had become and the rise of yellow journalism helped to create a climate conducive to the outbreak of international conflict and the expansion of U.S. influence overseas. But it did not by itself cause the war. In spite of Hearst's often quoted statement, you furnish the pictures, I'll provide the war, other factors played a greater role in leading to, out- to the outbreak of the war. The papers did not create anti-Spanish sentiments out of thin air, nor did the publishers fabricate the events to which the U.S. public and politicians reacted so strongly. Moreover, influential figures such as Theodore Roosevelt led led a drive for U.S. overseas expansion that had been gaining strength since the 1880s. Nevertheless, yellow journalism of this period is significant to the history of of the U.S. foreign relations in that its centrality to the history of the Spanish-American War shows that the press had the power to capture the attention of a large readership and to influence public reaction to the international events. The dramatic style of yellow journalism contributed to creating public support for the Spanish-American War, a war that would ultimately expand the global reach of the United States. So what can we learn about 
yellow journalism, and Citizen Kane. So how can we use Citizen Kane today to teach us? And what, what can we gain from it? Well, the, the most important thing I can think of is fake news. So I think that we're still learning from Citizen Kane and it's still teaching us a lesson to this very day. And we're using, we can use Citizen Kane to warn us about fake news. And it's important because from Facebook posts to headlines like Pope endorses Trump at president as presidential candidate, it is apparent that fake news is an inescapable issue that continues to marry the world of past and present journalism. The term fake news was popularized by Donald Trump in 2016, but instead of its definition, which is a way to describe misinformation, Trump used it as a way to discredit news that he didn't like. Trump has also expressed his fascination with Citizen Kane, idolizing the main character and almost living his life by the film's plot. If the headline is big enough, it makes the news big enough says Kane, as he prioritizes the gossip of housewives for his front page. Like Citizen Kane says, if the headline is big enough, it makes the news big enough, says Kane, over substantial news. Wells is commenting on yellow journal journalism, where many newspapers would print ill-researched and sensationalized story to intense to entice readers. Social media is likely to be the most notable difference between past and present journalism, as so much is available to consume online these days. Although social media has clear benefits, giving journalists a further reach and easier access to sources, it has also become a hotbed for clickbait and conspiracy theories. Citizen Kane's criticism of yellow journalism can easily be applied to contemporary sidebars of shame. So, in Citizen Kane, the notion of moving bedroom furniture into the office and suggesting you live there for the foreseeable has lost some of the absurdity in these days. When, when Carter, Erskine Sanford, objects to Kane moving into his office by arguing they're only a morning newspaper and essentially closed 12 hours a day, Kane smugly responds, the news goes on for 24 hours a day. Wells was ahead of the curve here, as this was nearly 40 years before the first 24-hour rolling news channel. CNN made its debut in 1980. Of course, no one's asking news reporters to bring their pajamas, toothbrush, and slippers along with them to the studio. Just yet. But Citizen Kane certainly predicted this modern necessity to have limitless access to the news. But Kane is about more than just damaging and isolating power of wealth. Or, Wells didn't simply make his protagonist a rich man, he made Kane a media baron, whose influence extends far beyond his riches, because he controls the press. And that, more than anything else, is why Citizen Kane remains essential viewing three quarters of a century after its initial release. Few films offer such a perspective view of the media's role in shaping American politics and thought. Even though Kane depicts an era dominated by the newspaper and the telegraph, and emerged when radio and newsreels held sway, its lessons have only become truer in, in the age of television and the internet. When he made Kane, Wells already knew a thing or two about the media's power to bend reality. On October 30th, 1938, at the tender age of 23, he achieved international fame by making War of the Worlds. And the stories were so grossly exaggerated that reporters had no way of telling the truth and extent of the show's impact. 
stitched together a few scattered reports of panic into a tidal wave of terror and had actually existed. And these acts of journalistic malpractice forever distorted the reality of that night, creating a mutually agreed upon fiction that War of the Worlds broadcast really had sent tens of thousands of if not millions of listeners fleeing into the hills on that Halloween Eve. This powerful, long-lasting narrative continues to shape how we understand the power of the media, even though it has been consistently and thoroughly debunked. There is a certain irony in the fact that the legitimate press in 1938 turned out to be much more successful at spreading fake news than the man behind the Martians. Wells understood the media's role in hyping his broadcast. He later told Peter Bogdanovich that the reported lawsuits he faced supposedly from angered listeners in truth existed in the fervored imagination of newspapers. But people were laughing much too hard, thank God, and pretty soon the papers had to quit. Wells also rec recognized that his false narrative was the springboard that sent him to Hollywood. If he hadn't been world famous as the man from Mars, he never would have received the remarkable offer from RKO Pictures to write, produce, and direct and star in two films entirely of his own conception that led Citizen Kane, his film career, then had its foundation, a myth, even a lie, one that Wells didn't create, but nevertheless exploited masterfully, and when it suited his purpose, he gleefully added to his own brushstrokes to the canvas, stretching the truth about the broadcast even further. This awareness filtered into the script Kane, a screenplay that despite recent claims to the contrary, Wells actually did co-write with Herman J. Mankiewicz. The film is structured around a reporter seeking to complete a newsreel obituary of Kane, searching for one piece of evidence, the meaning of Kane's last word, Rosebud, that he hopes will solve the jigsaw puzzle of this man's character, but everything he discovers only deepens the mystery further. In faux archival footage at the start of the film, one man calls Kane a communist, another brands him a fascist. A fascist. The, report, the reporter interviews, the reporter's interviews with people who knew Kane paint an equally contradictory portrait in their shifting memories. Kane in, is by turns idealistic and cynical, admirable and arrogant. It is easy to say what he's done in his life, the whole world eventually. It is easy to say that he's done in his life. The whole world evidently knows that, but it's impossible to say exactly who he was. Today, the March of Times might seem wildly irresponsible and even illegal, as historian Eric Barnow observes in his mammoth history of broadcasting in the United States. But its underlying premise that the audiences want news that's more entertaining and more comprehensible than reality itself has never gone away, and in fact has only gathered steam. The legion of pundits who populate today's news channels and blogs are each in his or her own way searching for Rosebud, something that would make sense of a chaotic, at times disturbing, and even nonsensical world. Citizen Kane be begins with a straightly factual newsreel account of Kane's life, but that's not good enough for the producers of the news on March. They want the angle, a good story, something dramatic, shocking, even touching. In short, they want Rosebud, even if, as the reporter realizes at the end of the film, no single word holds the key to a person's life. 
The brilliance of Wells' film is that it invites viewers to make up their own minds about its protagonists and opportunities. An opportunity the newsreel producers, like their modern counterparts, seem to determine or to deny in their own audiences. Kane's media empire is built on fakery and allegiance to the truth, like the real historical figure that inspired him, the great yellow journalist William Randolph Hearst. Kane will willingly reshapes the facts in service of his own beliefs, heedless of the heel-life damage he might cause. As the brash young publisher of the New Yorker Inquirer, of the New York Inquirer, he tackles the money-mad pirates making fortunes on the backs of underprivileged, even though his own finances are tied in with theirs. In the same scene, he gleefully seeks to spur a conflict between the U.S. and Spain, cabling a reporter in Cuba. You provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war. He promotes himself as a truth-teller, a righteous defender of the downtrodden, but he always puts his own interest first and foremost. Don't believe everything you hear on the radio, Kane declares early in the film, perhaps in a sly reference to War of the Worlds. As an alternative, he promotes his own paper. Go ahead and read The Inquirer. So we could talk about William Randolph Hearst, Orson Welles, the Spanish-American War, and of course, yellow journalism all day long. But I encourage all of you tonight, go ahead, pop up some popcorn, and watch Citizen Kane. It's a really, really good. And I don't know if it's just me, but every time I see it, I see it a little bit differently and I learn a little bit more. And that's exciting to me, especially in a time like today, right? You guys are listening to this right now, my podcast, and I'm telling you my ideas and my thoughts and how I see things. And I can only tell you that from how I've walked through life and the things that I've seen. But that's my perspective and my perception. The way you walk through life and the way you see things and your journeys and your adventures of the world make you see things slightly different than me. So it'll be interesting to see how you see War of the Worlds and what you learn from this. And I, as always, hope you learned a lot and I will see you all again soon.